Welcome students. Our topic of discussion is feminism. But before going into feminism straight away, into the discussion regarding feminism, first we have to understand sex and gender. What we mean by sex and gender and also sexuality. Although the terms sex and gender are sometimes used interchangeably and do complement each other, they nonetheless refer to different aspects of what it means to be a woman or man in any society. So sex refers to the anatomical and other biological differences between females and males that are determined at the moment of conception and develop in the womb and throughout childhood and adolescence. Females, of course, they have two X chromosomes, while males have one X chromosome and one Y chromosome. From this basic genetic difference spring other biological differences. The first to appear are the genitals that boys and girls develop in the womb and the doctor or midwife and parents look for when a baby is born. Assuming the baby's sex is not already known from ultrasound or other techniques. So that the momentous announcement it's a boy or it's a girl can be made. The genitalia are called primary sex characteristics while the other differences that develop during puberty are called secondary sex characteristics and stem from hormonal differences between the two sexes. Boys generally acquire deeper voices, more body hair and more muscles from their flowing testosterone. Girls develop breasts and wider hips and begin menstruating as nature prepares them for possible pregnancy and childbirth. For better or worse, these basic biological differences between the sexes affect many people's perceptions of what it means to be female or male, which we will discuss next. So, let us now discuss gender. If sex is a biological concept, then gender is a social concept. It refers to the social and cultural differences a society assigns to people based on their sex, which is biological. A related concept, gender roles, refers to a society's expectations of people's behavior and attitudes based on whether they are females or males. So what we understand in this way that gender is a social construction. How we think and behave as females and males is not etched in stone by our biology but rather is a result of how society expects us to think and behave based on what sex we are. As we grow up, we learn these expectations as we develop our gender identity 
or our beliefs about ourselves as females or males. These expectations are called femininity and masculinity. Femininity refers to the cultural expectations we have of girls and women while masculinity refers to the expectations we have of boys and men as this and a familiar nursery rhyme you know it nicely summarizes these two sets of traits and let us go through that rhyme and let's see what is there in that rhyme what are little boys made of snips and snails and puppy dog tails that's what little boys are made of what are little girls made of sugar and spice and everything nice that's what little girls made of as this rhyme suggests our traditional notions of femininity and masculinity indicate that we think females and males are fundamentally different from each other. In effect, we think of them as two sides of the same coin of being human. What we traditionally mean by femininity is captured in the adjectives, both positive and negative. We traditionally ascribe to women, gentle, sensitive, nurturing, delicate, graceful, cooperative, decorative, dependent, emotional, docile, passive and weak. Thus when we say that a girl or woman is very feminine, we have some combination of these traits in mind as I told you just now. She is soft, dainty, pretty and even, even a bit flighty. What we traditionally mean by masculinity is captured in the adjectives, again both positive and negative, our society traditionally ascribes to men. Strong, assertive, brave, active, independent, intelligent, competitive, insensitive, unemotional and aggressive. When we say that a boy or man is very masculine, we have some combination of these traits in mind. He is tough, strong and assertive. These traits might sound like stereotypes of females and males in today's society. And to some extent they are. But differences between women and men in attitudes and behavior do in fact exist. For example, Women cry more often than men do. Men are more physically violent than women. Women take care of children more than men do. Women smile more often than men. Men curse and spit more often than women. When women talk with each other, they are more likely to talk about their personal lives than men are when they talk with each other. The two sexes even differ when they hold a cigarette. 
When a woman holds a cigarette, she usually has the palm of her cigarette holding hand facing upward. When a man holds a cigarette, he usually has his palm facing downward. What accounts for differences in male and female behavior and attitudes? Do the biological differences between the sexes account for these other differences? Or do these latter differences stem, as most sociologists think, from cultural expectations and from differences in the ways in which the sexes are socialized? These are critical questions, you know. For they ask whether the differences between boys and girls and women and men stem more from biology or from society. If we think behavioral and other differences between the sexes are due primarily to their respective biological makeups, we imply that these differences are inevitable or nearly so and that any attempt to change them goes against biology and will likely fail. For example, consider the obvious biological fact that women bear and nurse children and men do not. Couple this with the common view that women are also more gentle and nurturing than men and we end up with a biological recipe for women to be the primary caretakers of children. Many people think this means women are therefore much better suited than men to take care of children once they are born and that the family might be harmed if mothers work outside the home or if fathers are the primary caretakers. So it shows that more than one third of the public agrees that it is much better for everyone involved if the man is the achiever outside the home and the woman takes care of the home and family. To the extent this belief exists, women may not want to work outside the home or if they choose to do so, they then face difficulties from employers, family and friends. Conversely, men may not even think about wanting to stay at home and may themselves face difficulties from employees, family and friends if they want to do so. A belief in a strong biological basis for differences between women and men implies then that there is little we can or should do to change these differences. It implies that anatomy is destiny and destiny is of course by definition inevitable. This implication makes it essential to understand the extent to which gender differences do in fact stem from biological differences between the sexes or instead stem from cultural and social influences. If biology is paramount, 
then gender differences are perhaps inevitable and the status quo will remain. If culture and social influences matter much more than biology, then gender differences can change and the status quo may give way. With this backdrop in mind, let's turn to the biological evidence for behavioral and other differences between the sexes and then examine the evidence for their social and cultural roots. Several biological explanations for gender roles exist and we discuss two of the most important ones here. One explanation is from the field of evolutionary psychology, the new science of the mind that argues an evolutionary basis for traditional gender roles. In prehistoric societies, two major social roles existed, hunting or gathering food to relieve hunger and secondly, bearing and nursing children. Because only women could perform the latter role, they were also the primary caretakers for children for several years after birth. And because women were frequently pregnant, their roles as mothers confined them to the home. Meanwhile, men were better suited than women for hunting because they were stronger and quicker than women. In prehistoric societies, then biology was indeed destiny. For biological reasons, men in effect worked outside the home that is hunted while women stayed at home with their children. So they were the caretakers. Evolutionary reasons also explain why men are more violent than women. In prehistoric times, men who were more willing to commit violence against and even kill other men would win out in the competition for female mates. They thus were more likely than less violent men to produce offspring who would then carry these male's genetic violent tendencies. If the human race evolved along these lines, evolutionary psychologists continue, natural selection favored those societies where men were stronger, braver and more aggressive and where women were more fertile and nurturing. Such traits over the millennia became fairly instinctual meaning that men's and women's biological natures evolved differently. Men became by nature more assertive, daring and violent than women and women became by nature more gentle, nurturing and maternal than men. To the extent this is true, the scholars add traditional gender roles for women and men makes sense from an evolutionary standpoint and attempts to change them go against the sex's biological natures. This in turn 
implies that existing gender inequality must continue because it is rooted in biology. Critics challenge the evolutionary explanation on several grounds. First, much greater gender variation in behavior and attitudes existed in prehistoric times than the evolutionary explanation assumes. Secondly, even if biological differences did influence gender roles in prehistoric times, these differences are largely irrelevant in modern societies in which, for example, physical strength is not necessary for survival. Thirdly, human environments throughout the millennia have simply been too diverse to permit the simple straightforward biological development that the evolutionary explanation assumes. And fourthly, evolutionary arguments implicitly justify existing gender inequality by implying the need to confine women and men to their traditional roles. Recent anthropological evidence also challenges the evolutionary argument that men's tendency to commit violence was biologically transmitted. This evidence instead finds that violent men have trouble finding female mates who would want them and that the female mates they find and the children they produce are often killed by rivals to the men. A second biological explanation for traditional gender roles attributes males higher levels of aggression to their higher levels of testosterone. Several studies find that males with higher levels of testosterone tend to have higher levels of aggression. However, this correlation does not necessarily mean that their testosterone increase their violence, as has been found in various animal species. It is also possible that their violence increase their testosterone. Because studies of human males cannot for, uh, cannot for ethical and practical reasons manipulate their testosterone levels. The exact meaning of the results from these testosterone aggression studies must remain unclear, according to some critics. Another line of research on the biological basis for sex differences in aggression involves children, including some as young as ages 1 or 2 in various situations. Direct and indirect aggression during childhood and adolescence. A meta-analytic review of gender differences, intercorrelations and relations to maladjustment. For, children, for child development, they might be playing with each other, interacting with adults or writing down solutions to hypothetical scenarios given to them by a researcher. In most of these studies, boys are more physically aggressive in thought or deed than girls, even at a very young age. Other studies are more experimental in nature. 
In one type of study, a toddler will be playing with a toy, only to have it removed by an adult. Boys typically tend to look angry and try to grab the toy back, while girls tend to just sit there and whimper. Because these gender differences in aggression are found at every young ages, researchers often say they must have some biological basis. However, critics of this line of research counter that even young children have already been socialized along gender lines. To this extent, this is true, gender differences in children's aggression may reflect socialization rather than biology. In sum, biological evidence for gender differences certainly exists but its interpretation remains very controversial. It must be weighed against the evidence to which we must turn next of cultural variations in the experience of gender and of socialization differences by gender. One thing is clear, to the extent we accept biological explanations for gender, we imply that existing gender differences and gender inequality must continue to exist. Biological arguments are constantly and consistently drawn upon to justify gender inequality and the continued oppression of women. In contrast, cultural and social explanations of gender differences and gender inequality promise some hope for change. So let's examine the evidence for these explanations. Some of the most compelling evidence against a strong biological determination of gender roles comes from anthropologists whose work on pre-industrial societies demonstrates some striking gender variation from one culture to another. This variation underscores the impact of culture on how females and males think and behave. Extensive evidence of this impact comes from many anthropologists who created the standard cross-cultural sample of almost 200 pre-industrial societies studied by anthropologists. And they found that some tasks in these societies such as hunting and trapping are almost always done by men, while other tasks such as cooking and fetching water are almost always done by women. These patterns provide evidence for the evolutionary argument presented earlier as they probably stem from the biological differences between the sexes. Even so, there were at least some societies in which women hunted and in which men cooked and fetched water. More importantly, some anthropologists found much greater gender variation in several of the other tasks they studied, including planting crops, milking and generating fires. Men primarily performed these tasks in some societies Women primarily performed them in other societies and in still other societies, both sexes performed them equally. 
Their findings illustrate how gender roles differ from one culture to another and imply they are not biologically determined. So, the researchers continue to investigate cultural differences in gender. Some of their most interesting findings concern gender and sexual. Although all societies distinguish femaleness and maleness, additional gender categories exist in some societies. The Native Americans known as the Mojave, for example, recognize four genders a woman a woman who acts like a man a man and a man who acts like a woman in some societies a third intermediary gender category is recognized and that is who is usually a man who takes on a woman's role. This intermediary category combines aspects of both femininity and masculinity of the society in which it is found and is thus considered an androgynous gender. Although some people in this category are born as intersexed individuals who were formerly known as hermaphrodites, meaning they have genitalia of both sexes, male and female, and many are born biologically as one sex or the other but adapt an androgynous identity. Researchers have found another androgynous gender composed of women warriors in 33 Native American groups in North America. And they call these women Amazons, quote-unquote Amazons, and notes that they dress like men and sometimes even marry women. In some tribes, girls exhibit such masculine characteristics from childhood, while in others, they may be recruited into Amazonhood. In some societies, for example, a married couple with too many daughters would select one to be like a man. When she was about five years of age, her parents would begin to dress her like a boy and have her do male tasks. Eventually, she would grow up to become a hunter. The androgynous genders found by anthropologists remind us that gender is a social construction and not just a biological fact. If culture does affect gender roles, socialization is the process through which culture has this effect. What we experience as girls and boys strongly influences how we develop as women and men 
in terms of behavior and attitudes. To illustrate this important dimension of gender, let's turn to the evidence on socialization. Socialization is the process whereby individuals learn the culture of their society. Several agents of socialization exist including the family, peers, schools, the mass media and religion and all these institutions help to socialize people into their gender roles and also help them develop their gender identity. Socialization into gender roles begins in infancy as almost from the moment of birth parents begin to socialize their children as boys or girls without even knowing it. Parents commonly describe their infant daughters as pretty, soft and delicate and their infant sons as strong, active and alert even though neutral observers find no such gender differences among infants when they do not know the infant's sex. From infancy on, parents play with and otherwise interact with their daughters and sons differently. They play more roughly with their sons, for example, by throwing them up in the air or by gently wrestling with them and more quietly, you know, with their daughters. When their infant or toddler daughters cry, they warmly comfort them, but they tend to let their sons cry longer and to comfort them less. They give their girls dolls to play with and their boys action figures and toy guns. While these gender differences in socialization are probably smaller now than a generation ago, they certainly continue to exist. Go into a large toy store and you will see pink aisles of dolls and cooking sets and blue aisles of action figures, toy guns and related items. Peer influences also encourage gender socialization. As they reach school age, children begin to play different games based on their gender. Boys tend to play sports and other competitive team games governed by inflexible rules and relatively large numbers of roles, while girls tend to play smaller cooperative games such as hopscotch and jumping rope with fewer and more flexible rules. Although girls are much more involved in sports now, than a generation ago, these gender differences in their play persist and continue to reinforce gender roles. For example, boys games encourage them to be competitive while girls games encourage them to become cooperative and trusting. The patterns we see in adult males and females thus have roots in their play as young children. School is yet another agent of gender socialization. 
first of all school playgrounds provide a location for the gender linked play activities just described to occur second and perhaps more important teachers at all levels treat their female and male students differently in subtle ways of which they are probably not aware they tend to call on boys more often to answer questions in class and to praise them more when they give the right answer they also give boys more feedback about their assignments and other school work than the girls at all grade levels many textbooks and other books still portray people in gender stereotyped ways it is true that the newer books do less of this than older ones but the newer books still contain some stereotypes and the older books are still used in many schools especially those that cannot afford to buy newer volumes other agents of socialization like mass media and religion they also contribute to traditional gender stereotypes scholars in many fields continue to debate the relative importance of biology and of culture and socialization for how we behave and think as girls and boys and as women and men the biological differences between females and males lead many scholars and no doubt much of the public to assume that masculinity and femininity are to a large degree biologically determined or at least influenced in contrast sociologists and anthropologists and other social scientists tend to view gender as a social construction even if biology does matter for gender they say the significance of culture and socialization should not be underestimated to the extent that gender is indeed shaped by society and culture it is possible to change gender and to help bring about a society where both men and women have more opportunity to achieve their full potential so from this discussion the key takeaways today is that sex is a biological concept while gender is a social concept and refers to the social and cultural differences a society assigns to people based on their sex several biological explanations for gender roles exist but sociologists think culture and socialization are more important sources of gender roles than biologies and lastly families schools peers mass media and religion are agents of socialization for the development of gender identity and gender roles so that's all for today again we will meet in the next class to go more deeply into the discussion about feminism thank you very much